Another Way to Play, episode 99. There really isn't a struggle. It's an experience. We all are going to have them. And the more we try to avoid them, it's, it's really what you're doing is you're asking, like Steve Jobs says, you're asking to go to heaven now, but you don't want to die to get there. You know? And it's just no such thing. This is Julian Sato, Chief Employee Ambassador. And if you want to learn to make the next chapter of your life better than the last, then you should be listening to Another Way to Play with my good friend Hans Struzina. Welcome to Another Way to Play, your wake-up call to finally make a difference by creating a life defined by freedom. This is about entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and industry professionals that have left the 9-to-5 rat race behind by taking that personal leap from where they were to where they want to be. It's time to stop going through the motions, stop hitting the snooze button on your life, and get the insight and inspiration to make the next chapter of your life better than your last. This is Another Way to Play with your host, Hans Struzina. This is Another Way to Play. I am your host, Hans Strazina, and I believe that if you trade hours for dollars, you will never achieve true freedom in your life. Today's guest is someone I'm really excited to share with you. It's Julian Sato. He's a former Hollywood talent agent, celebrity kickboxing instructor, and now corporate consultant. Uh, He's an MNLP practitioner, executive coach uh, who works with some of the top C-suite influencers of today, Um, also the owner of Pivot to Change LLC. Uh, and is a neurohacking specialist who shares what he calls the neurobiology, a combination of basic neuroscience and behavioral coaching, NLP and emotional intelligence, uh, pivoting the subconscious stories, transforming thoughts that inhibit change. A lot of really great stuff that we're going to get into today. Specifically, he says something about how your struggles are your strengths uh, later on in the episode that just takes us down a really interesting uh, path in this conversation that you're going to want to listen up for. And at the very beginning of the episode, he gets real personal and shares the transformative experience that took him from uh, sort of a kid skipping school and getting involved in drugs and alcohol in East LA to someone who was pursuing uh, kickboxing and that led him him down the road to ultimately meeting Jim Rohn in person. Uh, So definitely a really interesting conversation, a lot of very uh, practical as well as inspirational content to pull from. Uh, So if you get value out of this, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Just tells me how I'm doing and how I can keep getting better, plus really helps me grow the show. So thanks in advance. And without any further ado, Let's go ahead and bring him in. Here is my conversation with Julian Sato. Julian, thank you so much for being on the show today, man. Appreciate you giving us some of your time today. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, uh, I gave a little bit of your bio here in the intro, so uh, everyone listening knows a little bit about you, and we're really excited to get into some of the stuff that you've done through your life and what you're doing now. Let's back up and just give everybody a little bit more context and talk about where your journey first began. Wow, you know, I'm going to go way, way back, if that's okay. Can I do that? Bring it, bring because it. Because it really is a catalyst that really started my business, started me doing what I do, is I wrote a book. Well, I'm part of a book where I wrote my story, and it's called Resilience. And it, it, the story I pulled, which I literally forgot about until I had to think, and all of a sudden it came in like a wave. Um, it really was a catalyst to change my my life. and it's. Um, when I was about, when I was actually 16 years old, 
I had already ran away from home and lived in the streets. And then I eventually went to live with my father in, in East LA. And I learned heavily that East LA was a little different than where I was from, you know, <laughs> got beat up every day, uh, got robbed, you know, all those kind of things. My father was an alcoholic and really didn't have a lot of, um, you know, father-son time. It was just, I lived with him and my grandmother. And one day he actually busted into the room I was staying in, but they let me stay in and put a shotgun to my head because I had ditched school. Now in those days, you you know, they send letters to, to the house. And I guess the letter came and I didn't know about it or, you know, I never checked the mail. And so he had found out that I had ditched school several times, which I always ditched school, probably more than went to school. And, but he was drunk and he, Buzzing in the room with a shotgun, furious. I mean, talking to me as if I had stolen his life savings and his woman, right? So, um, and put this gun to my head and literally said, I should kill you. And, you know, of course, I, as a son, 16 years old, you're seeing your father shotgun, and it's a sawed off shotgun. So it was really close to me. And it was like, well, if you shoot me, I'll shoot you back, which is really a stupid comment because there's no way I could do that. But, you know, when you're 16, you're you're freaking out. Um, But he left. I guess he, caught himself and then he tried to tell me the importance of school which really had no weight at that moment you know so um when he walked out um you know i was in a bit of a shock i would say i was really depressed um we drank some of his beer and i was about to literally just pull i wanted to kill myself i was i felt useless i felt like i had no life i already left home for my mom lived in the streets i had no friends and so i just said you know what i'm not worthy i have no reason to be here and i put the shotgun i went to his room he was asleep i saw the shotgun was loaded the safety was off and so i literally put that shotgun on the floor and i put my chin like on top of the barrels and i was about to pull the trigger i was high as a kite drunk as skunk i mean i was I was done. I mean, I was already swaying and I literally could have, I could have just sneezed and that gun would have went off. And ironically, now this is what's strange. I'm not going to get spiritual. I'm not, I'm not going to get religious because I'm not religious. I've been studying human emotion, but I study neuroscience, NLP and behavioral coaching and behavioral science, I should say. But before that, I studied world religions and Eastern philosophies and Egyptian philosophy, as well as uh, Mesopotamian philosophy. And I really, I, I see they're all correlated. So what I'm about to say, I just want to make sure people don't get turned off. But um, I was listening to a, uh, a radio station, you know, and when you're sad, you tend to lean towards things that make you feel sadder, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of like, yep. if you're sad, you listen to sad music. If you're happy, you listen to happy music. So I was already sad. So I had turned on the radio station. Now, this was a Friday night. So the music was playing and it was Friday night love songs and the love songs was on. And, you know, these are the times where guys are trying to get, you know, get with a girl, right? They want to, mm-hmm. you know, get busy. And all of a sudden a song comes on by the Commodores called Jesus is love. And it just mm-hmm. changed the whole dynamic to the, that moment where I wasn't sad anymore. All of a sudden my things just changed to a more of a spiritual thing. And um, the guy on this, the radio, instead of just having the song play and talk about love songs, he started preaching like literally saying god has a plan for everybody out there and including you now i don't know if he was talking to me but at that moment it stopped me from pulling that trigger and um and from that moment i literally said look i gotta do something with myself and that's when i literally changed my name like you introduced me as julian but that was the day i changed my name from fred and growing up with the name fred not that it's a bad name but in teenagers and kids you know you get teased a lot with names and so i was teased a lot so i changed my name to julian and it it goes because my middle name is hawaiian which means jewel of the family so i used that name julian and i literally just reinvented myself i took up kickboxing 
I became a kickboxer, uh, literally started associating myself with um, myself and staying away from people that were dysfunctional. I felt like it was all on me. And that was a turning point for me because I really understood that it really, really is up to me and I can't let people uh, dictate my worth. And that was a, a way of doing it. And I got really heavily involved in boxing and kickboxing. And Rocky was my hero. I don't know if you've ever seen Rocky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, that whole Rocky series. If he made one now, I'd probably go see it. I mean, don't judge me, but that's, you know, it was Rocky was my hero. <laughs> so yeah. I got so involved in Rocky. I related to that guy. I just worked out all the time. I, you know, I just changed my life. And that was the turning point for me. Wow. So you had this, this pretty challenging childhood and then this sort of formative moment um, that, that really just sent you in a different direction. You completely reinvented yourself. Um, why, why the name change? Why the totally different direction? And, like, and, and more importantly, like how did you flip that switch in your brain? Because so, some people would, would have a formative experience, whether it's something like what you just described, which is unbelievable and I can't, can't believe I just heard that or something maybe less um, shocking, I guess, for lack of a better term. I don't know how to best describe that, but um, but wouldn't necessarily go full name change and just do a complete 180. Like they would take baby steps or go in a slightly different direction. Like how did you, how did you go in that whole different 180 way? It's a good, great question. And, you know, it's really, that's a, knowing the study of science and the behavioral science, I should say, and the way the brain works, um, I had already had precursors to help me with that. You know, I, I already saw my mom as a survivor. You know, she was a single mom. She took care of me as much as she could. My dysfunction started with school. And, and you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but I'm African-American, but I look Hispanic. And so when I grew up in the time that I was growing up, you know, uh, there was a there was a racial divide between light skin and darker skin African-Americans. So I had this racial dysfunction where I couldn't blend in with my family. And then my other side, my father's side was Hawaiian, Filipino. So I didn't really blend in with them either. So I already was a loner in a lot of ways. And so, and seeing my mom kind of be that single mom and take care of herself, it, it was already a precursor in my DNA, if you will. I, I've already seen that behavior. Um, and my mom has always been that one to nurture me, but it was like a turning point because I wanted to be a man. And so I, I, and I saw enough movies, I saw enough superhero comics, and I knew enough about what strength was to my opinion at that point. And so I just decided to kind of live a, a world of, of a movie scene, if you will. I just had to literally become a superhero. I wanted to learn gymnastics. I took gymnastics in high school again. I got involved in learning how to flip want to learn how to fight I wanted to be a superhero and so superheroes always had foes they always had drama but they always overcame so that became my psyche and it could have gone the other mm -hmm. way you're absolutely right I know a lot of people that I grew up with who didn't go that route and are, are gone now they're passed away they're dead from drugs or gang violence and um, you know it's because they just kind of leaned into their environment instead of walking away from it wow and and what do you think separates that because because you, you're right like I guess another question is like a lot of people grow up in, in really negative scenarios and sometimes they're not violent, like what you're describing. Sometimes they're just like abusive verbally, or they're just, there's a lot of inner self negativity in the first place or body shaming or any of these other sorts of things um, that aren't drug or gang violence. But like, how did you go out of that other than the sort of the precursor you had your mom as an example um, but that's just one person, right? You were surrounded by a whole group of other people doing the opposite thing. Yeah. The simultaneous thing that happened was, I didn't know if I mentioned this, I did, I think, but I grew up in LA. So right. 
in LA, there's, there's entertainment. You know? So I grew up in an entertainment industry. I mean, when I was a little boy, uh, uh, Marvin Gaye, you know, he lived down the street. He used to come over. Uh, it was a very, you know, I saw a lot of musicians and you would see him on Red Fox. You would see these people on TV, but then you see him in real life. And so I would say one of the turning points was I started getting attention in the entertainment industry. I uh, became a, uh, a teen idol. In those days, we didn't have social media, so we had magazines. I mean, you had mm-hmm. Write On magazines, Soul Teen magazines, and I was in those magazines. I was, they did articles on me and then I had a record deal. And that record deal was a very distracting thing. It took me into a space where I felt love, even though it was a false sense of appreciation and like, it was enough to take, uh, get me away from that environment that gave me another experience that gave me the opportunity to actually feel the things that I wanted to feel with my family or with the people closest to me. So I kind of, I kind of used that as my buffer and really just re- redirected my my uh, my experiences that way. So entertainment was a big part of it. I guess got heavily involved in the music industry, um, and you know, moving forward, I I didn't take the record deal. I quit because of some other things I don't want to get into because it was very put it this way. Music industry is very emotional and very expressive, and some people need to like sacrifice some things that they don't want to sacrifice. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that. So I just said no, and I just went ahead and just focused on other things. I ended up managing record artists and uh, just working with them. And I started booking them. I started working with several of them that even some of them won awards for their for their music. And so uh, that that's really where I got involved in the music entertainment industry. That's what I I stayed in for a period of time. So you basically found some other outlets as well as some examples of a different way that you could, yeah. and then you, you sort of clung on to those um, and then moved in that direction as opposed to stayed where you were and stayed with, I guess, what was known or comfortable, even though the experience you opened the conversation with was certainly not a comfortable one. But yeah. it's like sort of the devil you know is better than one you don't is what a lot of people would probably say, right? That's exactly. That's a great comment. That's exactly what happened. So the devil you don't, you find all the good because it's new. You know, it was a new experience. And, uh, you know, if you, can, if you can distract your brain from all the things you feel, uh, then you don't want to lose that. So you keep looking for ways to distract your brain. And that was the habitual thing. You know, entertainment was a great way to distract yourself. It doesn't take away the issues. Trust me, the issues never went away. I mean, until I started learning brain science, it never went away. And I can show you through my own story how I kept sabotaging my successes because of that, not that one moment, but many moments where your feeling of worthiness is literally stripped away from you through circumstance and through your, you know, especially through childhood. So, um, you know, even though I had opportunities to be successful and I had a lot of friends in entertainment, there was still this issue that I had in me that, you know, I'm not worthy. And it showed itself in many, many ways throughout my experiences. So let's, let's keep going into your story because this is totally fascinating. Like you, you've talked about like the study of Eastern religions and other religions um, and then the brain science. Like where did all that stuff come in? Because you've, you've brought it up a couple of different times now. Yeah, I'm going to jump forward to, um, you know, there was a part where I didn't, I left the entertainment industry um, after doing very well in the industry and I got into kickboxing coaching. It was, you know, Billy mm-hmm. Blank started Tybo. I helped him with some stuff and then, before that, then I started my own boxing business in LA and got and became very successful. And guess what? I had the opportunity to work with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> so, wow. so yeah, it was the Rocky of, thing came full circle for you. That's full circle, cool. yeah. I actually worked with him in Malibu. His trainer was in uh, Hawaii working on Waterworld and with Kevin Costner, and he couldn't get back to the states. So, I mean, not the states to to uh, LA because California and Hawaii 
it's still the same country. <laughs> but uh, it was one of those things where um, I got to work with him and it was a lot of fun. But um, I got married. And when I got married, I went to, um, we went to marriage counseling. And it was an interesting thing because I went to a, a very conservative uh, church and they helped us with premarital counseling. And for me, being in the entertainment industry, being a fitness trainer and a kickboxing coach, it didn't match up to them at all. It was like, you know, you need to get a job. What about a 401k and all this stuff? And I'm like, what? Right. You know, and um, what happened was I didn't remember. I didn't have a father figure. I, I kind of entertainment, kickboxing. I did very well in kickboxing to the point where I was blowing money. I didn't, and I was audited several times, twice to be exact. And um, so what happened was I, I, uh, I said, okay. So I tried a new job. I tried to get a real job. So I got a real job in the area that they were in, which was life insurance. And I know it sounds crazy, but I'm going to tell you right now, Hans, if you want to get rid of family, if you have dysfunctional family in your life, our friends just become a life agent because no one will call you. <laughs> they will not call you. <laughs> it's a great way to get rid of people in your life. If you just don't know how to get family to stop calling you and asking for things, let them know you're a life agent and they disappear. And so when I became a life agent, I lost all my friends. I mean, my business, I started focusing on that. So my kickboxing business, I sold it. Uh, I literally just became a different person again. So again, I'm reinventing myself. Right. But this time under different circumstances and I'm in a whole new world. So this devil, I didn't like at all from the get go. Right. And back to the feeling of depression and suicide. And I was just, that same monster came up and I was miserable. Um, the girl I was married to and uh, the world I was in, dress shoes, <laughs> you know, suits. Um, and then I met Jim Rohn by accident. And Jim Rohn looked at me. I don't know if you know who Jim Rohn is, but he's a yep. business philosopher. He's passed away. And um, he, he's a good friends of my stepfather at the time and, um, and uh, my uncle, because they were top producers in the insurance industry. And he introduced himself to me and shook my hand. He looked at me and dead in my eyes. He goes, hey, are you okay? And I go, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, no, you're not. He goes, you know what? Call me. And I was like, okay. And uh, I called him and he really just gave me a bunch of tongue slashing, man. He just whipped me to shreds verbally about my own thinking. And he directed me, he goes, I challenge you to read one book, just read one book. And if I give you the book, if you promise me to read it, then I'll, I'll take time out to talk to you about what you think. And, um, he, and that's where it all started. And I got so involved in the way the brain works and, you know, my own psyche. And he says, you know, like he always tells people in his speech in his seminars, he's, to say, in order to change, you have to change. But he didn't tell me that. He goes, I don't want you to change. I want you to tell me everything that's wrong with you. And uh, and I did. I told him everything I'm wrong with him. And he goes, and he literally helped me understand that everything I said was so feeling-based. It had no weight on any logic. It was just some emotional words from somebody else. And he goes, I want you to convert that. Give me the opposite word to that. And then give me some experiences that will dictate that truth. And that's when I realized that my brain is everything. You know, I realized my mind, the way I speak subconsciously has more to do with my life than the way I say things publicly. And that's where it all started. So I started digging in and he told, he's the one that told me, he says, I motivate people, but I get it. If you study anything from Eastern religions and philosophy and Greek philosophy, just, you know, if you look at Socrates and any of those guys, just read all that stuff, you know, read, um, Marcus Aurelius stuff, or, you know, read, so look at that stuff. That's where I get my stuff from. And it uh, has nothing to do with motivation, it has everything to do with the mind and the heart. And so that dove me into that stuff. And that's where it all started. Wow. So you had, that's so cool that you had a 
bit of a personal relationship with Jim Rohn because so many people in the personal development space, you know, lean on him as uh, sort of a, a cornerstone as to, you know, getting them involved with one of his books or seminars or someone that they know who knew him or whatever. Like that's, that's such a powerful um, experience. But when you're, when you're saying it's like for, for you and for what you learned from him, it wasn't, you know, motivation or personal development. It was just really learning from the brain. Like what was the thing or maybe the couple of things that you pulled out uh, from that, that made the biggest difference to you. And, and what does that actually mean that it's not motivation? It's, it's more just like learning how the brain works. Like, can you give us a couple examples of that? Yeah, easily. Yeah. So uh, motivation is almost like, like we were talking about earlier music. Like if I am driving in a car and a good song comes on, I'm motivated to be happy. Right. But as soon as that song leaves or turns, goes off, the next song could change my mood. So motivation is a mood swing, but it's not a, an attitude adjustment. There's a difference between feeling motivated and having a, a change of attitude. Attitude is is something that's long, lasts longer than that. So um, motivation gets people fired up, but you'll see 90% of the people come back to the same motivational seminar. They hear the same thing, but they don't apply the actions. And so that's where I say the biggest thing is learning how to be applicable in the things you hear. Like, how do you take what you heard and personalize it? And that's what most people don't do. It's like, um, you know, like put it this way. So one of the Japanese proverbs that I love, it says, fall down seven, stand up eight. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a great quote. Like, oh, I love that. You know, All right, but what does that mean? All right. So what have I, what have I fallen down from? Um, let's see. What have I failed at? Did I stand up again and do it again? Or did I just give up? You know, it's like challenge yourself to actually find where those motivational quotes apply to your life versus just looking for a way to tell somebody else about it. And I think that's one of the things he really wanted me to do. And just a lot of people don't know, but he was into the sutras, which is a, a, it's about the wordsmithing. It's like if you take the sutras from ancient Egypt, when you mix words together a certain way, they give you a certain type of energy. And that's what motivation is. That's what music is. That's what uh, poems are. You know, we love words because they inspire us, but they do give you energy, but you have to hold on to the energy and apply it into an applicable way to your personal life. And that's what he taught me, you know, just kind of pay attention to what you're saying. And then if you like it, then make it personal. And so that's what I did. So he had me pull out a bunch of stuff and um, just live by it, you know, and it doesn't mean you don't, you don't, uh, what do you say? You know, one of the things he told me, it doesn't mean you don't fail. He goes, I, there was a, uh, he said, and this, somebody else said it too. I don't know who, who quoted this properly, but he says, you know, a brain surgeon would never say he's done surgery on a brain and found a bad childhood. <laughs> so it really is the way you think, you know, has nothing to do with you, with the, what's in your mind, you know? So I thought that was pretty powerful. So someone's listening to this and like, okay, like, I get that. Like I need to go identify some areas in my life and how I can make, make some of this stuff personal. Um, like how, like how do I go about like digging into my past? Like, do I have to go all the way back to my childhood and talk about, you know, the, the bully on the playground and kind of readdress that moment? Or is it something that I can start today and move forward on? Like, how would you break that down for someone who's, who's sort of nodding along with us at the moment? Yeah, you know, behavioral coaching, I would say yes, because you have to figure out the root of the behavior, but I would not say resonate in it. You know, if it's hurting you to the point, like there's two ways of looking at it. If it's bleeding out or if it's just a wound, you know, you can you can have a scar and say, hey, this is what happened to me one day. But if it's still bleeding out to the point where you're like feeling the pain, then yeah, you, you probably need to get some, you know, some help with that. But it really, the 
I think finding the root cause to things is going to help you not repeat the same behaviors or reactions to it. Um, you know, I'll give you a little analogy of that like, I work with a couple right now and I relate to this guy so well because he was a loner growing up. And so when him and his wife had fights, he would just go away, just disappear and become really recluse from the family. Well, talking about that, that might feel comfortable, but what you're doing is you're trying to find security in yourself by acting the same way you did as a child versus really addressing the issue. Instead of letting this issue go for two weeks with your wife, address, hey, you know, I feel like walking away right now and just becoming recluse. I think it's because of this. That gives you, that changes the story and it gives you a new paradigm to live on versus just reacting to the past and letting that push you forward. Um, and that's what that's what I do. So I think, yeah, it's very important to figure out where it comes from, you know. So if not, you'll repeat the same behaviors and you'll blame it on everybody else. It's going back to Jim Rohn's point, you know, you have to make it personal. You have to literally, it's all on you. I love that analogy. And that, that makes a ton of sense. Like calling out what you're feeling and, and that's sort of the basis of mindfulness as, as a concept, right? It's just identifying what is real in the moment, whether it's, you know, stress or happiness or whatever, just where is that coming from? What is it feeling like? And I, and identifying it or calling it out and saying, I want to walk away because blah. And you're right. Like if you did that in the moment, and you were in an argument, you'd probably change the entire trajectory of the entire conversation and argument. And it's it changes, in a really it interesting way. The, it takes away the argument. Now it talks about how you're feeling about the fact that you guys didn't agree on something, you know? So that's the, that's the, that's the power of that, learning how to really understand that you usually don't talk about your feelings. You express your feelings through words but they don't talk about your feelings. So you never really get to the root issue if you're just talking about an issue using feelings behind it. So you have to talk about the feelings. You know, um, my wife is very, we're so opposite. It's, it's wild in so many ways. But if she, she has a certain personality where she like, <laughs> when she talks to me, sometimes she'll put her finger up. She'll like, like, wait a minute. You know? And I look at that like, why are you trying to shut me down? You know, but learning yeah. how she, where she got that from and where she, where this personality trait came from, I have grace to that person. I have grace to that act. I don't see it as it affects me. I see that that's, she got that from childhood because that's what her coach used to do to her when he wanted her to stop crying. <laughs> you know, so it's like mm-hmm. you learn that gives you another ability to kind of see things from a different angle. And it changes, like you said, the trajectory. it changes this, the tone of everything. And so that's, that's the, co- the power of coaching and behavioral coaching. I want to get into the the business coaching that you're doing, but before we get there, I just had a, a thought about what you just said. Like your your wife has this motion where she puts a finger up to kind of like say stop stop talking or or pause or whatever, um, and it's because her coach wanted her to stop crying in some practice or game or whatever whatever the thing was at the time. I'm not sure, but um, that begs the question in my mind, like as you go back and sort of look at the root of a problem and a feeling, um, happiness, sadness, et cetera, like you use the analogy of a scar or a wound, like can you actually heal that so that the scar is no longer there? Or is that something you just have to be willing, like the scar is there, you address it and you just say that's what it is and that's what it was and, and then move forward. Um, Cause you also said you, you know, you want to, you want to be, um, I can't remember what the word you just used, but sensitive to your wife's emotion and not take it personally. Right. And honor the fact that she had that experience and that's just a way she expresses herself. Right. As opposed to forcing her to stop the finger pointing thing. 
Right. Well, here's the thing. First of all, yeah, you'll never get rid of the scars. I mean, unless even when you're hypnotized, I mean, it's still sub, somewhere subconsciously in your head. So you can't get rid of the scars. And so I don't try to get rid of the scars, but I want people to identify that the scar is not you. It's a, it's a part of you. It's a trigger. It's you, We all have triggers in our life and they come from past because our subconscious is looking for similarities in everything. If you look at a cloud right now, your mind's going to be looking at that shape of that cloud and it's going to be running um, like billions of images in the head looking for imagery that reminds you of something that you can relate to that cloud. That is our human gift. That's actually a God-given gift. I mean, it's something that no creature on the planet can do, right? So put this in perspective. So if that's the case, you have to see it as this is not me. I'm not sensitive to this, but this is a trigger that makes me sensitive at this time. There's a big difference. When you word it that way, you now don't take yourself personal. You don't beat yourself down. And that way you can look at a scar and not say, this is me. This is just something that's on me at this time because I rolled up my sleeve and showed it to you. That's that's a whole different way of dealing with yourself and seeing yourself. So most of us will say, I am fill in the blank. I am fill in the blank is literally saying 24 hours a day, even when I'm asleep, this is who I am. And there's no such thing. So learning that you have triggers and you have memories and you have things that happen or things in your life that trigger you and recognizing that is the first step to being able to have control over that trigger. And I say control lightly, but just being aware of it and making a choice because you're not going to, you know, like if somebody cuts you off on a road, you might get angry at first and that's okay. You should be like, you know, it should shock you. But if you drive all the way to your office and share it with everybody else, well, now you're not really owning up to the fact that that was a trigger and it made me shocked at first, but I'm good now. It's just, you're not giving mm-hmm. yourself the power to change it. So that's what I think I would like to teach people, but yeah, getting rid of triggers. Yeah. You can't get rid of them. And I would never try to do that to anybody. Uh, thank you for breaking that down. I think that honestly, like at least in my personal development journey, like that has been one of the hardest things is like understanding the fact that it's never going to go away. Like those scars and those emotions and the stuff that happened as a child or, you know, last year or whatever, whenever, um, isn't going away. It's part of you, part of your experience and going forward, you just have to address it, call it what it is and, and let it be there, but don't give it more power than it has. So, and I just say, you know, as soon as she say that, because that's one of the things I say in my, in a seminar and I've gotten some flag for this and I say it, I, I say it all the time and I'm, I apologize to those people that don't like it, but I believe everyone's struggle is their strength. I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody, I think we've conditioned ourselves to think to be happy means have no stress. You know, everything is living in a hammock. You know, it's like you have to get out of the hammock one day and pee. You have to. I mean, you, right. getting back in the hammock is going to be a struggle. Getting out of the hammock is going to be a struggle. There's no such thing as a non struggling life. I mean, even, you know, if you read every Marcus Aurelius's uh, diaries, basically, he's the most popular, uh, most powerful man in the world. He had the same struggles I have, you know. Um, struggles throughout history has been what defines human existence and is something we should embrace instead of try to avoid. And so I get a little irritated when I hear people say, you know, if you do this for this one, two, three step, you'll have this. And that's mm-hmm. not true. You know, it's like you might have it for a day. It's like a diet. It'll be good for a minute. But as soon as you get off the diet, you're back to this, you know, so we need to really embrace the fact that struggles are a gift. And if you just look at it and lean in, like in boxing, if you lean into a punch, it takes away the sting. But if you try to avoid it, and once you get hit, you're going to, you know, you can get knocked out. So it's really just understanding that. You know, it's interesting that you say that. Um, I'm reminded of 
something that I tell people that I think shocks them all the time is like the Olympic village. Cause when I went to the Olympics, like this was one of the things I noticed the most was that there were, it was, it's a 10,000 person village and that's how many people are allowed to compete as athletes in the Olympic games in the summertime. And it's a village of 10,000 athletes who are all at the top of their game. And they're all basically just a bunch of like insecure kids who had a chip on their shoulder who were trying to prove something. Like that's yep. what I came out of. Even like Usain Bolt and like all these guys like who were, you know, crowds of people following them all over the place. Like it's just like we're all, we all had that in common. It was sort of like you could just see it in everyone's face because I felt that way too, you know. It's like it's I had the my wife was a gym, her sport was a gymnast. She was an Olympic team with Bella Caroli and uh, Mary Lou Retton and all that. She was a, a professional. Oh my gosh, gymnast. that's so cool. So to your point, I mean, you know, we're all in this inferiority, superiority complex. It flips every day. Every time you meet somebody, your brain is switching for that. Am I inferior to this person or am I superior to this person? That is a natural. And see, learning about totally. the brain science takes takes the personal out. It made me feel so much better about me because I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. That's just human nature. You know, We're very competitive in our skin all day long. So to your point, and when I was a you know, kickboxing coach and in the fitness industry, I would say a lot of the most fit people are the one, really the most insecure because they've put so much energy into trying to build security on the physical level, but they don't work on the mind. And so, uh, you know, I call myself a brain hacker too, you know, mind hacker, because it's like you have to literally work that mind out just as much as a body because if you don't you'll keep you'll be the buffest dysfunctional person you know so i don't want people to be like that yeah absolutely and then your comment about your your scar your weakness is your strength or your struggle is your strength that's what you said and um have you ever seen the movie uh with alex honnold when he did free solo he climbed up the face of el cap in in the yosemite valley with no ropes no i didn't see that all right you should check this movie out. But okay. Alex Honnold is one of the greatest big wall climbers ever to, to climb walls in the world ever. And so he, he did this thing that no one's even tried um, where he climbed up the face of El Cap, which is 3,000 feet of vertical granite in Yosemite Valley without a rope. And he did it by himself. So no spotters, no nothing. You know, it's like basically one move and he's done, you know. If he slips, if one finger hold is off here or there, he's gone. And the the whole movie was an hour and a half or maybe two hours, and it was sort of leading up to him going up this going up the the mountain or the the face. And you know they talked about his childhood and how he had a kind of a rough situation with his parents, and they split, and his mom was not like she called him a weirdo regularly, and he probably was on the spectrum in some capacity, but like. I remember leaving that movie theater when I saw it the first time and thinking that was, first of all, absolutely amazing. But then second of all, it's like, it's kind of interesting how he is like this oddball kind of weird kid, but he did something that is like pushes the boundaries of human capability now um, to be able to climb this 3000 foot uh, vertical face with no ropes and just smile while he did it. And they get to the top and be like, that was cool. And he like, didn't even like, fist pump or anything you know it's like and it just got me thinking about like how like through that dysfunction and through that frustrating childhood and all the struggles they showed in the movie like that beautiful act happened and and it's kind of like what you were just saying so i mean for those of you who haven't seen the movie go watch the movie but um 
but yeah, I wonder what that brings up for you. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I think everybody should think about that. What you just said is a perfect example is like my lack of family tribalism, not having that chakra, if you will, or that, that feeling of people liking me, helped me dig into what it takes and what does it mean to feel like. And I realized it has nothing about me. It's about making others feel what I didn't have. So I created tribes. I have an inner circle. I have this group that I've created where we meet every week on Zoom from people from all over the world. Every business I've done has been about tribalism. When I when I teach sales, I teach people how to really connect with people because that's something I lacked as a child. Just, you would have never seen that movie if his mother didn't possibly just use that one analogy. If his mother never called him weird or he had the dysfunctions, you would have never seen this guy climb that wall. You know, So it would have never been possible. He probably redirected that energy into that. And because of that, you saw a great example of turning weaknesses into strengths and our struggles into strengths. And so, because it really isn't a struggle, it's an experience. It's, we all are going to have them. And the more we try to avoid them, it's, it's really what you're doing is you're asking, like Steve Jobs says, you're asking to go to heaven now, but you don't want to die to get there. You know, And it's just yeah. no such thing, you know? So live your life, lean into it, know that you're going to have struggles. If you want to be rich, you're going to have drama with that. If you want to, if you're going to stay poor, you're going to have dramas with that. This drama is really just a definition of breathing, you know? So uh, interpret it for what it is and, and, uh, and literally experience it as it, what can I learn from this? And how is it going to benefit me in the future? Right now, my son, I have two boys. One's going to college in L.A., um, in California. The other one's already in California in the music industry. And every day I talk to them, I said, what is your experiences today? Not what happened, because the word happened means something happened to me. It's like the transcending of like something wrong. But what are your experiences today? What is your experience with people? What did you experience with how you felt when you walked into the room? What, what did you feel? You know, I want to know your feeling because that's where the lesson is. And that's mm-hmm. where I have fun, you know, dissecting, like dissecting human nature. So That's so cool. Well, we're getting to the end of the time and I want to respect the rest of your day here. Um, and maybe we'll, 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 bring you back on for another wrap up conversation on everything that we've, we've talked about, or we can dig into more Alex Honnold stuff or, or yeah. whatever. But um, I want to transition us to the, to the last section of the show called the focus five, which is the same five questions on uh, ask every guest on every show. Are you ready? Um, sure. <laughs> I'm leaning into it, man. I'm leaning into it. <laughs> right on. All right. Uh, first question is what book have you gifted most often? Actually, that's a great question. Um, that's uh, The 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill. I've given that book out a hundred times. And I take it back, my book, Resilience, and that's been about 150 times. <laughs> <laughs> we'll link to both of those down in the show notes for you so you okay. can find it, find it very okay. easily. Um, if you could get an hour of somebody's time, past or present, live or dead, and ask as many questions as you wanted, who would that person be and why? Wow. Um, Marcus Aurelius, I love him I, because he was—he wasn't the—he wasn't the guy that's really invented anything. He just really studied what was there, and I think that's—that's that's what I want to use. I'm not trying to invent anything. I just want to see how you study it, and how you apply it, and he did that. I mean, he studied, you know, so many Greek um, philosophers and sages, and then he studied, you know, ancient Egyptian laws and, and of nature and then he applied it to his daily life and so I, I would really like to have a conversation with him because he was really a, a, an amazing leader and but yet he was still a part of his time so he had moments where he had to compromise some of his 
life choices, and I think all of us have in some ways. So I would love to meet a man like that and talk to him. That's a killer answer. I love it. What is one thing that you believe that most people would disagree with you on? Would disagree with me on? Yeah. Oh, this might ruin everything. I'm glad you didn't ask this in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I would say, wow, uh, that's a loaded question. I mean, I, to be honest, I would say uh, organized religion. Mm. I would say is a really struggle for me after studying world religions and history. I would say if I was to sit here and battle with you over what I'm looking at, this substance and it's water, and you say, no, it's agua, we can have a battle over that and then say, you know, you're wrong, I'm right. But if you were to step away and look at the, this little ball in the, in the center of this mass, vast universe and realize that there are no such thing as borders, there is no such thing as, you know, lines in the, in the, on the sand that says this is this country, this is that country, and this is, I believe, and you really understand that belief systems were based off of the same exact thing, human nature wanting to know what is truth? What is life? What is the reason for me being here? And they look to a higher purpose for that. They might have called it something different. But when you find out that, you know, um, you know, the words that we use in the Bible and the words that we use are really the same words in other country, cultures. The word, you know, yogi is the same word as priest. It's the same thing. You know, it's the mm. exact same thing. You know, prayer is meditation. So I have some friends who, and I study, you know, Eastern philosophy. I study Hebrew and Greek and, and learning how to understand that, um, you know, they didn't have a word for sky in Hebrew. They just called it heaven. So you can mix it up. You can just understand. It's just understanding the true nature of communication. We fix on the words. We fix on the nature, the nature of things. Then the nature of things is all the same. So I would say that would be my one thing that people might disagree with me on. Love that. That's a that's a really great explanation. Thank you for sharing. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. How do you like to start your day? Well, I get up at four eleven every morning, um, and no matter what time I go to bed. And actually, when I travel, which I haven't done lately, but I get up at four eleven on my own. I just wake up, and so the first thing I do is I pray or meditate, however you want to call it. You know, so yeah. And I usually just let my brain go into, and I I. Not every time, but I write. If I have the need of having an idea, something comes to my mind, I want to know why it does, and I write it down. Uh, and then I read. I read for about an hour every morning um, before I do anything else. And then I eat a banana, and then I jog about four or five miles and work out. And um, and then I get dressed, shower, and I make breakfast for my wife and I, and then I get into the day. So my day starts around 4, and I get into busy work around 8.30. But the first That's part awesome. of the morning is mine, and I love it because not many people do that. Agreed. Not many people do it is right. Man, Julian, this has been so great. What is the best place online that we can connect with you? I appreciate that. So you can go to juliansato.com as juliansato, S-A-D-O.com. And I have a, my company name is called Pivot to Change, and it's number two change. But I use that word because you have to pivot physically to get a new experience. So it's Pivot to Change to have a different life. And so that's the best way to find me. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn has that F period, Julian, because I never disregard the fact that I was born Fred. So uh, I'm not ashamed of that, but it's just, uh, everybody knows me as Julian now. So that's what I yep. use. Awesome. Well, we'll link to all of that down in the show notes along with your book. Um, and anyone who's interested, you can go connect with you on your website or on LinkedIn. Um, Julian, man, this is, this is awesome. You really brought it and you brought a ton of value. So thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time.
Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much for having me. I really, really look forward to uh, seeing you more and talking about things later in life. Absolutely. And that's it for today. If you want to get to know Julian a little bit more, go connect with him on his website or on LinkedIn, which are all down in the show notes. And of course, you can find all of my social handles as well as my Calendly link to grab a 15-minute slot on my calendar to have a chat and get to know each other just a little bit better. Really excited to uh, continue to have those calls with you all and uh, just get to know who is listening and how I can keep providing value to you. So thanks in advance for that. And uh, I'm going to sign it off for today. So this is Hans Strazina, host of Another Way to Play. And remember to make every chapter better than the last. Thanks for joining in for this episode of Another Way to Play, making the next chapter of your life better than your last. For more insights and inspiration to help you make that personal leap, be sure to engage with Hans on social media and get your questions answered right here on the show. Reach out to Hans at Chief SNAH on Instagram, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Another Way to Play.